As I've already mentioned, we're thinking about Father's Day. Last month we talked about Mother's Day and we looked at Sarah as an example of faith. Uh, Today we're going to look at her partner Abraham as an example and a model of faith for us. And we look at Sarah and we look at Abraham not to worship them, but rather to see them as examples and guides given by the Lord to help us. And, and, and that's where those who go before us and walk with the Lord are, are that to us. They're a challenge by their example. We can learn from their lessons. Uh, we, one, of the, one of the things I like to uh, do is kind of twist that, uh, the expression you've heard, you know, when it comes to exercise and all that, uh, no pain, no gain. Uh, I kind of adapt that and say, your pain, my gain. In other words, how can I learn from the struggles you've gone through? Maybe the mistakes you've made. Uh, not to criticize because I'll, I'll make plenty on my own. But if I can learn from someone else's and not repeat what, what's already happened, how can I learn? We can, we can look at Sarah and Abraham. By the strength of, and courage of their faith, we can see where they stumbled. And if you're smart and you're walking, someone walking ahead of you in the path and they seem to, if 12 people ahead of you all seem to trip right at a certain point, if you've got some wisdom, when you get to that point, you're going to look at the ground a little more carefully. And so we look at them, not to worship them. We, we can honor those who have faithfully followed the Lord, but we learn from them and are challenged by them. And we can see that Abraham indeed is, is an example of faith, and I can gain that because uh, he, he makes it into the, uh, the hero's hall of faith. And, and that's, we can call it different things like that, but Hebrews chapter 11, when we are being told, here are examples of faith. Abraham's in there, as, as is Sarah. But it, we see this in chapter Hebrews 11, uh, verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, uh, Abraham is an example to us, his faith. You read through chapter 11 of Hebrews, and it makes it very clear. We're saved by faith. And yet, you read through the chapter 11, and what the author keeps saying is, you can see the faith by, their, by the, what they do, by their actions. The actions don't win God's approval. The actions are evidence of a living faith. And so we see that in, in his life. So he's, Abraham is an example of faith. Where does Abraham show up? In the Bible, he shows up in Genesis. And Genesis uh, describes his calling in, in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 5. I'll, I'll skip verse 3 just to, uh, since we're more trying to glean out some ideas. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. So there we see God calling him to leave home and family and, and, and go where God would lead him. Interestingly, apparently, he didn't, he didn't start off by saying, here's the map, here's the destination. You know, usually when we take a trip, that's a good idea, to know where you're going. In this case, it was simply know who you're following. The, over in the book of Acts, we, we get a few more details. Stephen was uh, the first Christian martyr. He, he died for his faith. And in Acts chapter 7, before he was killed by the mob, uh, he kind of walked through an overview of the history of Israel. And in that, he talked about Abraham. So in, in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, we read this, filling in some more details. Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory 
appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So if we put those two passages together, again, one of the things we'll see, sometimes the Bible will have um, multiple passages that are talking about the same event, and usually they're, they're, not, they're not a word-for-word word copy of each other. That doesn't mean there's a conflict. That's saying, Lord, thank you for multiple witnesses so we can get a fuller picture. You put the, those, those two stories, the two narratives together, and we see that Abram was called to leave his home, leave his relatives, and go where God would tell him. And, and, and Acts tells us that God actually appeared to Abraham. And uh, if we leave, read in other passages, we find that uh, Abraham originally lived in a city named Ur, which was a, a great ancient city, prosperous city, but he was a city dweller. You know, he, was, he was not a tent dweller to begin with. And so he was called from the city of Ur when God appeared to him. Now, the, the book of Joshua... Chapter 24, verse 2, gives us a little bit more information. Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. That's helpful for us to understand. Abraham lived in the city of Ur. Actually, the two cities we see mentioned here, Ur and Haran, are both uh, centers of moon worship, worshiping the moon god. But he lived not only in a a pagan, idolatrous, polytheistic city, that's the family in which he was raised. He was was raised in an idolatrous, polytheistic family. They were idolaters. So he's raised in an ungodly culture, and an ungodly family. Now, by the way, some of this, that's an encouragement. Some of us may have been raised in a family that is multi-generational Christian. Fantastic. What a heritage. Um, don't don't, don't uh, sit on your laurels. Push ahead. Be grateful for the advance you got and push ahead. For some of us, we were not raised uh, in, in a Christian home at all. Uh, We were raised without knowing Christ, and we came to faith later. Perhaps some of you have yet to come to faith, but but here's an example of Abraham. We might say, well, he was a great man, but look at all the advantage. Well, he, he was raised in a pagan culture by pagan parents. And God, it's, and, and, and by the way, some of the legends that come out is, well, he, he obviously was different. And that's why God chose him. Well, that's getting the uh, horse ahead of the, or the cart ahead of the horse. Uh, He wasn't uh, different, so God chose him. God chose him and made him different. The sentence almost sounds the same, but it's very different. God, in his grace, came into this pagan home and said to Abraham, follow me. And he enabled him to see and believe and follow. So Abraham, by grace, believed And in believing, he left behind the false gods and religion he was raised in. He left behind the culture and city where he was raised. He even left the family that raised him. God called him to leave and follow. And he left and followed. Mostly. Mostly. Because if you were looking carefully at some of the passages I've read... God told him, Abraham, in Genesis 12, he reread, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. But actually, if you read a few verses earlier in chapter 11, you see it didn't quite work that way. We were told that he would, God was leading him to the, to the place of Canaan, to the land of Canaan. That was the land of promise. He left Ur and got as far as Haran. On Wednesday night, we kind of showed some maps and all that. If you were... Um, looking at uh, a Bible map. And, I, and, and in, the, in the olden days, you know, you would be looking at a, uh, a paper Bible, and in, and in the back there were, there were maps. 
Nowadays, you have to look at a different app to look at your map. But, but if you look at that, you see the region of what's modern day, or what we call Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq and Iran's over there, where the two, down where the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates kind of meet, that's where Ur was. Haran is up in the region of Syria. So as he followed along what's called the Fertile Crescent, he got about halfway there and stopped. And we see that explained in Genesis chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. In Genesis 11, 31 and 32, we read, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and, he, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. God appeared to and spoke to Abram and said, Leave your family, leave your father's house, leave your home, and go where I'm showing you, the land of Canaan. But notice this says, Terah led the family up to Haran. So somehow Abraham expressed, I've, uh, um, God's calling me to leave. And Terah said, well, let's go. But notice he didn't leave his father's house. His father's house went with him. And so as a result of that, they, they went as far as Haran. Again, Ur was a, a center of moon worship and so was Haran. So he kind of just changed locations. But he went to another city that was a moon worshiping city. And that's where they stayed as long as Terah was alive. So Abram's obedience was partial. And because of that, he ended up not going straight to the promised land that God was guiding him to. But he ended up parking in Haran until his father died. And now he was independent and could go back to following the Lord. So, so it was a partial obedience. It kind of reminds me, and you know, you almost imagine, you know, are, are the angels and God maybe saying, "Come on, let's move, let's move here." Have you ever heard the irritation, the sound of irritation in the voice of your GPS, <laughs> recalculating? And so, you know, take the next U-turn. Trying, I'm trying, recalculating. You know, you can almost hear the angels there. Come on, Abraham, recalculating. You're not supposed to park in Haran. And so we're not told the details here except this. He didn't fully obey. He, he went with an, an under his father. So he didn't leave his father's household. He stayed in it. And they moved and parked in Haran. And this is one of those things where the scripture doesn't tell us, but we wonder, what, did, what opportunities did he miss through his partial obedience? He wasn't where God wanted him to be where God is calling him to be. And he wasn't who God called him. He, he said, Abraham, you get out. Bring your wife, but you, you, you separate from them. But he did trust. He did follow because he didn't completely trust the Lord and didn't completely follow. He, there, that, and that continued to be a struggle to Abraham. So, but, but here's what I want us to know. Here's Abraham, a great man of faith. He's honored for leaving, even though it was kind of a little stumbling as he went. Now this, I don't want you to take that as a license. See, I, God calls me to something. His word commands me to do something. As long as I partially obey, God's satisfied. Well, God isn't satisfied. And you won't be satisfied. But we see God's grace and compassion. You know, yeah, Abraham, great hero of the faith, he was imperfect. And, and he didn't get off to a very great start. Some of you, again, weren't raised in a Christian home, came to know the Lord later, and, and you look back and say, well, that was kind of a rough start. You know, it was, there were some, some stop and starts along the way. Um, in fact, that would probably be true of every believer. In our, in, our, in our beginning steps, it's, it's imperfect. But we see God is God of compassion. I love Psalm 103. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows what he's dealing with. But he still is a God of compassion. Why did God make him leave Ur, Mesopotamia? Why did, 
Why did God make him even do that? Well, for one reason, God had a land for him. God, God was taking him to a different place. That wasn't the place that God was going to give to him and to his family that he would raise. Why did he have to leave his family? Why, why did he say, leave your father's house? He's not even just saying, get away from your cousins. Leave your father's house. Seems like the reason he was concerned about that is there would be a constant influence against the true God. They were idolaters. And as long as he was in that midst, it was going to be awfully hard for him to be a faithful follower of Christ. And he would be raising, God wanted him to raise a family, and he would be raising a family in an ungodly, pagan-worshipping situation. And God wanted him to separate from that. And we see, as long as with his father, his, his, his obedience was partial. We see later on, you might remember, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has to, you remember, gets to one of those family drama things. He had to leave the area for a while and go live with Uncle Laban, his mother's brother. Won't go through the whole story there, but remember when they come back, there's a little problem. His beloved wife it brings some packages from, from home. And it's not her favorite sausage. It's household gods. Where'd they come from? Cousin, uh, cousin Laban's home. They were idol worshipers. Well, if, if, if a short stay there and, and, and leads to that, what would happen if they continued to live among that? And so God in his mercy called them to separate. And when he did, he was better off. We can learn from Abraham. He stumbled at first, but in the end he did forsake the land, the culture, and the, and the pagan family. And he did follow the Lord. And there's a lesson for us. When God calls us to follow him, implicit in this that is there's also he's calling us to leave. Some of you went through that even this morning. We're going to church. What does that mean? We have to leave. Seven minutes ago. You know, come on now. We have to leave. To go, you must leave. And that's true geographically. It's also true spiritually. You know, there's some helpful um, acronyms for the Christian life. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Faith, forsaking all, I take him. In, in, in saving faith, part of saving faith is a repentance. It's a turning from sin and self to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It's, it's a leave to cleave. It's a forsake to follow. And so Abraham is an example and shows us the important. And while he was only partial in his forsaking, he was only partial in his following. And tragically, in his case, it took the death of his father before he would truly forsake. And even then, and it gets a little complex, he still brought along his nephew Lot. One of the great uh, challenging authors out there is A.W. Tozer. When you read A.W. Tozer, you have to get ready to get, get pushed around a little bit. He, he, he doesn't like pulling his punches. He said this, Christ calls men to carry a cross. We call them to have fun in his name. He calls them to forsake the world. We assure them that if they but accept Jesus, the world is their oyster. You can tell he's an older writer. We don't talk about the world being our oyster these days. He calls them to suffer. We call them to enjoy all the comforts of modern civilization can afford. He calls them to holiness. We call them to cheap and tawdry happiness that would have been rejected with scorn by the least of the Stoic philosophers. We can afford to suffer now. 
We'll have a long eternity to enjoy ourselves, and our enjoyment will be valid and pure, for it will come in the right way at the right time. So we can learn from Abraham. He's, the call to follow is a call to forsake. His partial following or partial forsaking led to a partial following, but by God's grace, he, he, he reached the goal. And in that, we see that God is a God of grace. Even as I'm saying these things, maybe you could look at your life and say, yeah, there's some areas where I've been kind of a partial follower, and I certainly need to forsake some things. Well, they don't, they don't say, well, God's given up on me. That's not the answer, so I'll give up on God. Some people take that approach. I've messed up, so I'm going to quit. That's not how it works. Rather, God's a God of grace. And he would pick us up and help us get to the finish line. Have you ever seen these, some of these races where there's a good example of real sportsmanship where someone collapses? And it just, it's, a, you know, it's a most moving thing where someone comes along and grab, puts an arm on them and helps them over the race. I remember a great athletic event when I was in uh, uh, middle school, uh, junior high we called it. We had a foot race, and I remember one of the guys I knew, was, he, was, he was one of our star runners, and he was running, and we were right there. At the, he, was, he was putting it all out, and he was coming ahead, and he was going to win. And all of a sudden, I was following his head you know, in among the runners, and all of a sudden, it disappeared. He, he, he pushed so hard, he just collapsed. And then he got up, and he went on to the end, to the applause of at least our school. But, but there was something heroic in the fact he didn't let that stumble stop him. If the things we've been saying today call to mind a stumbling in your life, don't let it say, therefore quit. That's the enemy telling you that. The Holy Spirit's saying, get up and get back on the course, like Abraham did. So we see Abraham as an example in that way, in, in how he, he forsook and followed. And the second thing to notice, he, he trusted, in trusting God, he could follow captives and forsake treasure. That's an odd point. Now here I have to confess, I had a different outline for this morning's message. And then we had our pre-study time on Wednesday night. And points were brought out I hadn't even considered. My, and if you look at the outline that's in the bulletin, there are three nice points. And they all start out trusting God. It's really good. Um, my outline, and I have to say, it, it, it was alliterated beautifully, with, with all starting with the letter I, but it was six points. Uh, and, and so I got help on Wednesday night, and we have three points. But I want to give credit where credit is due. There's something valuable about getting, because people were calling out things, that, and it was like, oh, yes, why isn't that in here? So the next, this was one of the ones I hadn't even thought about. Genesis chapter 14. Trusting God, he could follow captives and forsake treasure. Um, let me read a little bit about that. Some interesting passages. This is not necessarily where you normally go in a devotional thought. Genesis 14, 8 and 9. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the valley of Valley of Sidim. Against Keterlomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Try read that quickly. But, but notice a kind of a not helpful summary. Four, four, there are four bad kings, if you will, four invading kings, five homeland kings there in the land of Canaan. Skipping down to verse 11 to 13. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went their way. I'm not getting into the full story, but these invading four kings conquered uh, the rebellious five kings of the land of Canaan and led away captives and led away their goods. That's what they just come in. We're going to conquer your cities. We're going to take you away as slaves. We're going to take away your possessions. Verse 12, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods have departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ishkol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies of Abram. So someone got out, someone escaped from the, 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 the train of captives being led away, and got to Abram, 
the uncle of Lot. This right away tells us something. Abram, we're called as a Hebrew. That means he crossed over the river. But we see Lot, his nephew. Remember I talked about those ungodly influences? Now, the New Testament tells us he was a righteous man, but he was living in Sodom. And if you read his story, it did have an impact on his family. A devastating impact. And here, now he is with the, sharing the fate of the people of Sodom. Well, um, Abram, if you read the account on in chapter 14, he puts together, we mentioned that he had these allies there, and he had over 300 what are called trained servants. So he, had, he knew was, they were living in a rough world, and he trained them for combat. And he put together the plan, and he followed those, those four invading kings that had conquered five local kings. He followed them. He conquered them. He rescued the captives, and he brought everything back that they had taken away. Abraham, the old shepherd. By God's grace, God gave him victory. But I'd like to look at the return trip in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 23. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abraham, and he blessed and he, and, and he said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. In other words, just let the captives free and, and you can take all the, the loot that was taken. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now this account is one of the earliest recorded battles or wars in ancient history. This is around 2000 B.C. Four kings come from the east and conquer, capture five kingdoms in the land of Canaan. And again, we saw one of those captives. There was this, two of the cities are familiar, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, the nephew of Abram, was living in Sodom. And his, he and his family were among the hostages taken captivity. And all the wealth that he had acquired was taken captive. And the war had nothing to do with Abram. He was, he was comfortably living up in what later would be called the Judean wilderness. He, he was comfortably living in the area of Hebron. But he was drawn into it for the sake of his... And he would have not been involved except there was Lot, his, his nephew. And again, he showed great success in how he executed the battle. But the aftermath of the battle teaches us our lesson. Well, there's lessons in all of it, but... On his return with the captives and the loot, he's met by a priest king named Melchizedek. You could translate that uh, king of righteousness. Tzedek is righteousness. Melech is the word for king. He was the king of righteousness. And we're told he's the king of Salem. You know the word shalom. He was the king of, of peace. But actually, we understand that that's Jerusalem. So here's an interesting fellow. Like I said, he's a, he's a priest king. He is both a king, king of righteousness, and he is a priest of the God Most High. And if you listened, when, when, when he is blessed by, when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the way he, dis, he his, his blessing, blessed be the Abraham, God of, by, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice how he describes it. God most high, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, he's not one of many gods. It's all his. He is the one true God. When Abram tells the king of Lot, I don't want anything with the smell of Sodom on it. What does he say? I have raised my hand, speaking of taking an oath, to the Lord. Now, if you're looking at the Bible like mine, that's all capital letters. That means it's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And then he uses the labels that Melchizedek used. What's he saying is, the God worshipped by Melchizedek is the God of the Bible, the one true God, Yahweh, the God who is the God most high and who possesses heaven and earth. So this is an interesting character. He's an unusual figure in the Old Testament. You know, he just kind of shows up. In Hebrews, it mentions the fact, we're not, normally when we're told about kings, we, we're told about their genealogy. He's the son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Where he, he has no genealogy, um, which is kind of a picture of Christ who has no beginning, only a picture. By the way, um, on, um, I, 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 in passing, when we talk about Melchizedek having no, you know, no genealogy, um, can you think of anyone else who, in, in the Bible who has no parents? Right, Joshua, the son of Nun. I had, to, I had to say that because it's Father's Day. We would call that a father joke, a dad joke. So, um, we, but uh, we won't get started. This is, that's so. But anyway, here, here he is um, meeting this priest king. Strange fellow, he just shows up. But he's discussed quite a bit in the Bible. He's mentioned in other passages. In Psalm 110, Psalm 110, verse 4, great messianic psalm, we're told that the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Mosaic priests are Levites. And there's a distinction between the, the royal line of Judah and the priestly line of the Levites. But the Messiah is going to be a priest king like Melchizedek. So this, fair, this person is an important character. He blesses Abram in the name of God, and Abram worships him, by, worships God through him. He recognizes his priesthood, and he offers a tithe to him. So what he's doing is he is worshiping God in the presence of this priest, and he's honoring God for God's blessing in his life. He gave him the victory, and so he gives, he gives a tenth to the Lord. And his giving is an act of worship. And then they have a fellowship meal. So he both, they worship together and they fellowship together. And by the way, notice how those two go together. You will not see Abram sitting down for a meal with the king of Sodom. You know, think of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd and he guides, he leads. And then at the last part of the Psalm, it moves from the sheep flock and the fold to the household uh, hospitality. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my, my head with oil. And so here we see those that worship and, 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 and communion over fellowship and a meal go together. And so he fellowships with Melchizedek. He worships with and through Melchizedek. Then the king of Sodom comes along, and he, he says to Abram, just let go of the captives. You can take all the treasures that were taken from my kingdom. It's all yours. That's the least we can do. And, and Abram is very strong and clear, and he's adamant in refusing. Again, verse 23, I, I raised my hand to God. I took an oath. So that tells me that must have been in the presence of Melchizedek. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. You know, sandal strap is, is like a shoelace. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the nastiest, you know, part of your clothing. It's, it's dirty. Matter of fact, if you, have you ever seen, remember, this is ancient history. Remember when we were at war with Saddam Hussein? And what people, when, when they knocked down his statue, what did people do? They took off their shoes. In the Middle East, the greatest disgrace you can do is hit someone with your shoe. I, don't, I won't even touch your shoelace. I, I'm not going to take the least of what you have. Lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I don't want to be associated with you. With Melchizedek, he was glad to sit down and share a meal together and to worship. It must have been such an encouragement. After all the 
idolatry and paganism that had been a part of his life to sit down with a fellow believer and worship the God most high. It must have been the sweetest of meals. Because haven't you noticed that sometimes when we follow Christ, you can be lonely. In your workplace or in, in, around those around you, you can kind of, sometimes in our families, we can feel lonely. There's a dividing wall. And how sweet. And that's one of the benefits of church. And that, like these, these fellowship times that we're having on these Wednesday evenings, you see we're, there's, there's good precedent for it. Believers fellowship together. And so he was delighted to have communed with, fellowship with, worshipped with Melchizedek. King of Sodom, he wants nothing to do with him. So you notice something. Abram is learning the principle of separation. He's separated from the idolatry of Ur. He separates from the immorality and idolatry of Sodom. By the way, the word holy means set apart. Holy. That's, that's basically what the word means. Set apart, separate from. Most of our homes have something like that. You know, like you might have, he, these are the guest towels. Which means the rest of us, normal human beings, can't touch them. Those only they come out for the guests. You might have, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what you use at Father's Day. Is the china coming out? Or is it the paper plates that leak? It's Father's Day. I'm I'm guessing it's going to be the paper plates. (laughs) Why do you need a napkin? Aren't you wearing jeans? Uh, but, But in other words, there's the separate, the holy, the set apart. A saint is a holy one. Set apart. And that means set apart from sin and stain to God. Abraham is getting that. He's set apart from Sodom and he's set apart to God and God's people like Melchizedek. God, Abraham's faith led him, gave him the wisdom to have victory in battle and his faith led him to fellowship and commune and worship with a brother in the Lord. And that faith led him to avoid fellowship and avoid entanglement with the ungodly and immoral people of Sodom. In fact, to this day, that very name is associated with wickedness. Abraham has a lot to say to us about similar challenges today. And it's interesting that that's an ongoing problem. 2,000 years before Christ in Abraham's day, uh, almost... uh, 200 years ago in the days of of Spurgeon. Here's what he said. Do not go where Jesus is not present. And if distinctly you are obliged to say, I've heard sermon after sermon, almost without mention of his name. I've gone for months together. I've not had a sweet thought of heavenly fellowship assisting our service. Then don't go there again. He's talking about people who go to church and they walk out and say, I heard nothing of Christ. I heard, you you know, maybe I heard all about Social justice, or I heard all about politics. He says, if, if you're not being led to the throne of Christ, don't go. Do not go to any church or meeting house merely because you've been in the habit of going. If your father used to live in Islington, but now is removed, you do not think it needful to go and call him at his empty house, do you? Go where the Lord has met with you, and there you may expect that he will meet with you again. So he talks about, don't, waste, don't make the mistake of following custom and whatever else it might be. Follow Christ. A Baptist leader of ancient history, Adrian Rogers. Some of you know he's not so ancient. Uh, and I, I remember the first time he came and spoke at chapel one time in seminary. And, you know, I'd never heard of this guy. And he got up, and if ever you've heard him on the radio, he has a powerful voice. I remember I, I felt like pushed back into the seat. And... Um, and, and he had a lot to say. But he said, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. You can cling on to that one. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. Let me tell you something, friend. It is not love and it is not friendship if we fail to declare the whole counsel of God. Listen to this. Now, this is in 1996, but friends, this is more true today, isn't it? It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. 
It is impossible to find anyone in the Bible who has a power for God who did not have enemies and was not hated. It's better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with the multitude. Better to be ultimately succeed with the truth than to temporarily succeed with the lie. There's only one gospel, and Paul said, If any man preach any other gospel to you than that which has been preached unto you, let him be accursed. So, forsaking all I take him, Abram understood that following the Lord means separating from, forsaking ungodliness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, To have fellowship with men who deny the truth is to deny the truth by implying that the truth does not matter. Abraham got that. It took him a while to get that, but he got there. And so he didn't, you know, he didn't mind even if the king of Sodom was offended. But he said, I, I'm not touching a thing from you. Right after he left another king and he ate his food and sang hymns of worship. As a matter of fact, we understand from some accounts of the Greek translation of Genesis, they actually sang the God of Abram praise. He and Melchizedek know. So now point three then, trusting God for a son and trusting God with that son. This is the famous passage, Genesis 22. The son of promise had come. Genesis 22, verses 1 to 3. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abram and said to him, Abraham, and, and Abram said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. That's a powerful statement in verse 3. God just, and notice how God drives home the point. Isaac, your only son, the son you love. That's, I, I'm, that's who I mean. And he's driving home. I know it's going to cost you. Take him and offer him as a burnt offering. You're making very clear. You're not just going to you know, give him into Lord's service. You're going to kill him, burn him on an altar like you do the lambs all the time. And um, if, if, if this were talking about Drake being called, then it would be say something like, and Drake sought the Lord to make sure there was no mistake. And he fasted for 40 days, still waiting for clarification. Notice what it says. Abraham saddled his donkey first thing in the morning. That's faith. It doesn't hesitate to obey the clear will of God. God has spoken. Verse 4, on the third day, Abram lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Moriah, you read in other accounts, that's Jerusalem. We talked from Wednesday night. Um, every evidence is that's the very place this, this is the temple mount where he was taking Abraham, uh, Isaac for sacrifice and Abram said to his young men stay here with the donkey and the lad and, I will, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you and they went up verse 7 Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said my father and he said here I am my son he said look the fire and the wood but where is the lamb of burnt offering? You see, uh, he had worshipped often with his father. He knew what was involved in worship. Here's the fire. Here's the wood. Where's the lamb? And Abram said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then he places Isaac on the altar. He ties his hands and feet as he would at the lamb. And he takes out his knife to sacrifice his son. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram. And so he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abram lifted his eyes and looked there. Behold, there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the lamb, or the ram and offered it. For a burnt offering instead of his son. God had promised Abraham he'd be the fa- he would he'd give him a son who, and he would be a father of a nation through that son. Isaac, he made it clear. This is the son of promise. You will have a nation that will come from Isaac. Abraham believed the promise of a son at first, but, 
But he stumbled along the way. He tried to help God. Remember, he went to Hagar and he tried the other things. And God made it clear, that's not, we don't keep my promises by disobeying my will. And to his great wonder and delight, Abram and Sarah rejoiced in their son Isaac. Remember, there was a laughter of unbelief from, uh, from Sarah. And, and with both of them, was the, there was the laughter of wonder. And so they called him Laughing Boy. That's how you translate Isaac. He had struggled, but he believed God and rejoiced to see God's faithfulness. And then God tested that faith. Abraham wasted no time in obedience. The three-day journey, what was it like? Can't you just imagine? So, so questions that came up. One question, did Abraham tell Sarah what he was planning on doing? I don't think he would have reached Moriah if he had. I don't know. Um, we're not told he did, but we're not told. What was the conversation like on the way to Moriah? What happened? We don't know. F.B. Meyer, who writes great Bible biographies, he says, can you not see the old man slow, slowly gathering the stones, bringing them from the furthest distance possible, slowly tying the knots? I'm not so sure. He was quick to obey. But then he says, the inspiration draws a veil over that last tender scene, the father's announcement of his mission, the broken sobs, the kisses, wet with tears, the instant submission of the son who was old enough and strong enough to rebel if he had had the mind, then the binding of that tender frame which indeed needed no compulsion because the young heart had learned the secret of obedience and resignation. Finally, lifting him to lie on the altar on the wood, here was a spectacle which must have arrested the attention of heaven. Here was proof of how much mortal man will do for the love of God. Here was an evidence of childlike faith which must have thrilled the heart of the eternal God and moved him in the very depths of his being. What was Abraham thinking? Genesis doesn't tell us. Hebrews does. In Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, we're told, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received... And he, he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figure of sense. He knew God said, You're going to have a, a nation of descendants through Isaac. Isaac at this point had no children. God had promised in Isaac. And so his, his understanding was, God, if you want me to sacrifice him, I will, but you're going to have to bring it back to life because you said in this Isaac, I will have descendants. That's how much he believed the word of God. I'm not saying it made it easy. But he just believed, God, if I've got to kill him, you've got to raise him back because you promised. You promised. And you are faithful. Notice when he was getting ready to leave, he told his servants, I and the lad will be back. I don't think he was just lying. I think he thoroughly believed. We're going to go up there and we're coming back. Because God said, this is the one who will bear the descendants of promise. In Father's Day, it's hard to comprehend what Abraham went through. It's incomprehensible. We're told in Genesis it was a test. But it tells us something. Believing obedience is not an easy path. Have you heard the expression easy believism? Those two words, belief and easy, do not go together. Easy believism doesn't fit with take up your cross and follow me. When you take up a cross, that means you're ready to die. You're going to die, and it won't be pretty. Belief doesn't mean, faith doesn't mean an easy path. And have you heard that? Oh, you just believe in God because it makes your path easier. No, no. Tell that to Abraham. Faith is not the path of ease. Faith is the path of trust and obedience. 
Martin Luther one time was with his family and they read Genesis 22 together and he made this remark. He said to his wife, Katie, I, don't, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. But Katie said, he did. And, and when we come to this passage, we, we, we we're struck by the fact that he was willing to offer his son to the Lord because of his love for him. He was willing to offer, but didn't have to. Our father did offer his son for us because of his love for us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So as we come to think about Abraham, we're reminded of the importance of forsaking all I take him. We have to forsake and follow in faith. We're reminded of, of the realizing that when we're faithfully following, that will, that, will, that will affect with whom we worship, with whom we fellowship, and, with, and from whom we keep our distance. That's part of faith. And faith means complete obedience, implicit obedience to God's word and trusting God that he will just as completely and implicitly keep his promises. But this awful passage of offering his son, what a challenge to the heart. But at the same time, what it shows us of the heart of our father and of his son who went to that same mountain and just a little bit across the street, he gave his life for us. God gave his son and didn't keep him back. If you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear the love of a father. And he calls you to trust in his Savior, his son, that he gives you. For those of us who know him as Savior, may we be challenged by the example. May we... We thank God for those who have been a fatherly influence in our lives. I was not raised in a Christian home. But there were those who came along and had a spiritual influence in my life, and I still think of them and the lessons they taught me. As you think of some of those in your life, offer up a prayer of gratitude. And then think about it. If you were entrusted with that kind of kindness and gift, Who are you parenting? Who are you encouraging? Who are you passing along the truth to? And if you have yet to trust in Lord Jesus Christ, hear, hear the love of a gracious Father calling you to trust in him. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you that you are the Father, never faltering, never stumbling, always faithful, always trustworthy. Father, we confess, we stumble, we hesitate, we rebel. But by your grace and mercy, we, we ask for your daily forgiveness for our daily failings. And Lord, grant us the grace to continue to grow as, as Abraham did, for your glory as Abraham was. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.